So let's begin. Um, I think we've got everyone here that's going to be here. Um, let's rise and start with prayer. And uh, say the prayer that we said last time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in this reverence for your blessed commandments, so that, having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things that are pleasing to you. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory, together with your Father, who is without beginning, and your all holy, good and life-giving spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. <clears throat> So, to begin with, um, are there any questions on anything that's come up over the last week uh, from the readings or just your thoughts based on what we spoke about last time? We covered a little bit last time on, um, you know, Christianity as a revelation of God. Did anything come to your mind? Any questions uh, since last time that you'd like to ask or anything you want to share? Yeah, I do think about things, but then I forget them. Okay. No? Okay. Can you talk more about how Christ is the second Adam? Oh, yeah, good. We're going to talk about that today, actually. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. How Christ is the second Adam. Um, that's going to be part of your reading. That was part of your reading uh, towards the end of, end of it. We're going to get into that. Anything else? Okay. Um, so let's start. Um, the book that you read, those first 30 pages, uh, obviously gives a very broad view of everything, um, starting with creation, um, who God is, and the Trinity, and he creates the universe creates all things, then there's the fall of man, and and then his restoration through the second coming, through the, through the incarnation of Christ. So clearly we're talking about eons of time here with regard to what that those 30 pages are trying to condense. So the, the point of the lecture today is to maybe look at one or two things in more depth, okay? And what I want to focus on is what we believe, what we teach about God, the Holy Trinity, and um, get into that a little bit more because the more we can try to wrap our minds around the mystery of God, the more we can appreciate what God has done. Okay? So, first of all, when we begin to talk about God, we have to be very careful, uh, and that is because we can't approach God as a subject or like as a topic that we're going to kind of take and put under a magnifying glass and, you know, examine and dissect. You're all here because you have faith, because you have a relationship with God, 
And so the key to that is love. So we approach this topic, we approach talking about God, first of all, with faith, with love for God, and with humility. Okay? So that we don't begin talking about, about him, almost like we're gossiping about God. Right? But in a sense, we're talking with him. And this is a very important distinction for the rest of this class, for this seminar, is to make sure we are doing uh, what we're doing, how we're talking, how we're thinking about God. It doesn't become this um, obje objective exercise where he's there and we're going to try to figure him out. No. So that's where we have to be careful. Like we say in the liturgy, we, we approach God with the fear of God, with faith and with love. And that's how we're approaching Today's topic, which is going to talk all about who God is. And this love of God that I'm trying to get you to enter into as catechumens, as Orthodox Christians, um, is at the heart of Christianity. The, the love for God is at the heart of Christianity and also particularly at the heart of what we call orthodox piety and devoutness. To love God, to honor and respect him, to, awe, to be in awe of God is something that is not static, but it's something that is uh, that can begin to develop as a child. Some of you may have had that experience. As a child, you had that kind of awakening to God. And so for some people, it happens later in life. Some people are more sensitive to this spiritual world around us, even as young people, young children. Others, not so much, but it's something that develops. And as this spiritual sensitivity, this awakening to God's presence develops in a person, so hopefully also is love for him, right? Because a person begins to experience God's love through his life and usually through good times and through bad times, all right? And then that's sort of how we begin to love God and to know him from a personal perspective. I remember, uh, and, then, and then as that's happening, you kind of develop this thing that we call faith. I remember when my son, he was, we were in Boston, and uh, he was like four years old or so, five years old. We were walking home. We were at seminary, and we're walking home, and uh, our housing was on campus, and I'm walking home with him, and uh, and I stop because he had stopped behind me, and I turn to look, and he's standing there in front of the chapel like this. There was a beautiful big chapel there, he's standing in front of the chapel, and uh, my mom was also happened to be standing right next to him. So I just kind of kept walking. I didn't think of anything, but he was just standing looking at the chapel. And then later, my mom tells me, you know what Isaac was doing when he was standing there? She said, I said, what was he doing? She said, yeah, he stood there and he looked up and he said, I believe in you. And then he walked home. <laughs> it was like his moment. You know, it was his moment of connection with God. Right? He, had to, he felt he had to say that. He had, felt he had to uh, declare that at that moment. So... Like I said, for some people it happens at a young age, with others it happens later. Somehow that occurs for every human being. 
Um, so when I use the word faith, I'm talking about not only the dogmatic teachings of the church, so you have uh, you know the doctrines of theology, but also this personal faith, which is my trust and love in that God is in control, that God exists. Um, and this faith is what you see in the saints and the prophets and martyrs and the righteous people, the holy people of God. And their faith came out of their love for God. And their love for God increased their faith. So there is this, this uh, cyclical nature to it. And as you know, the Bible says in uh, Matthew, the greatest commandment is to love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So I'm saying all that as a preface, like I said last time, that when we begin to talk about God, we do so with love for God. Because without love for God, we will never truly know anything. We might be able to understand some things, like I can give you a book, you can read that whole book, and you'll learn things with your mind, but you won't really know God. You'll know a lot about God, but you will not know God. See the difference? And we're trying to get to this point where all of us as Christians, we're trying to know God, not only know about him. And the danger, again, is to fall into things very intellectually, and then we begin, we keep God at a distance. Uh, and that is a tragedy. That's the human tragedy. For a person to die having never known God. So, um, we will focus now a little bit more on creation and the creator. So, this I just spoke about knowing, right? Knowing God. But from an orthodox understanding, when we start looking at theology and trying to describe or talk about God, the first thing we need to say when we attempt to do that is, I don't know. I don't know, and that's okay. So why I don't know? There's actually something hidden in this phrase. It's very orthodox, and you'll see in a minute why. I don't know, um, and that is because uh, when we approach talking about God, we do so with what is called apophatic approach. Apophatic is a means to only say what God is not, right? Because we cannot say what he what or who he is. If we did, that means we would know his essence. But we do not know his essence. We only know his energies. I'll talk more about that. So we say, I don't know. And that's okay. So here's a quote from Clement of Alexandria. He says, most people are enclosed in their mortal bodies like a snail in its shell, curled up in their obsessions after the manner of hedgehogs. They form their notion of God's blessedness, taking themselves for a model. So 
that happens. We think of God and we imagine God based on our own conceptions. And that's already a mistake and a dead-end road because it's very subjective and it's based on our limited understanding. Gregory of Nyssa, these are the, some of the church fathers. Every concept formed by the intellect in an attempt to comprehend and circumscribe the divine nature can succeed only in fashioning an idol and making God, fashioning an idol not in making God known. Um, if you remember in the book, there was a part in the reading where it says that God created the world ex nihilo, which is a Latin phrase meaning out of nothing. So if he created out of nothing, then a child might ask, well, if God created the world, well, who created God? Right? You ever ask that? I, I got that. I usually get that question from kids. Well, who created God? Um, and I have an answer, and the answer is, um, if God was created, then he's not God. Right? If God was created, then he's not God. So, what we're talking about so far is that we're limited in our concepts, we're limited with our vocabulary, we're limited with our sort of fallen human mind to really do justice and really understand things, the mystery of God. All we can do is approach it in the way the church fathers did, and that was through this apophatic method. Um, another quote from uh, Dionysius, the Europa guide. He says, if it happens that in seeing God, one understands what is seen, that means it is not God himself who is seen, but one of those noble things that owe their being to him. For in himself, he transcends all intelligence and all essence. He exists in a super essential mode and is known beyond all understanding only insofar as he is utterly unknown and does not exist at all. And it is that perfect unknowing, taking in the best sense of the world, that constitutes the true knowing of him who transcends all knowing. You gotta digest that. That's a, there's a there's a very heavy theology there, but ultimately what it's saying is we cannot know God, his essence. Only what he reveals to us we can experience, and the response of that is to have, again, awe and love and honor to God. We are the recipients of his majesty, of his glory, but we cannot penetrate past that and now know his essence, okay? Just like a vase cannot know its creator. So the, we have this unknowable essence of God. Essence. What is essence? Well, you all are human beings. You share a human essence, a human nature. That's your essence. But individually, you're individual persons, so you're unique. But you all share your own human essence, right? Even scientists cannot really know human essence, right? 
we can study the body and the brain and know its functions and everything about it. We can do x-rays and MRIs, and we have a pretty good understanding. But we do not really know the essence of humanity, because if we did, we'd probably be able to fix all the problems, wouldn't we? We'd be able to cure cancer. We'd be able to maybe even not die, because we, we would unlock the essence and know how to fix it. So we don't even know our own human essence. How can we possibly know God's essence? Okay? So there's this, this is a lengthy quote, but again, I wanted to share it with you because uh, it touches on, it, it explains, and it is a, a form of this apophatic theology that we're talking about. And it might be a, seem a little dense and heady, but I, I just want to share it with you because I think you should hear, hear it. So this is also Dionysius Theropagat. He says, we therefore say that the universal cause, so now we're not talking, we're not using the word God anymore. When referring to the essence of God, we're saying a cause, okay? Which is situated beyond the whole universe is neither matter nor body, that it has neither figure nor form nor quality nor mass, that it is not in any place, that it defies all apprehension by the senses. Rising higher, we now say that this cause is neither soul nor intelligence, that it can be neither expressed nor conceived, that it has neither number nor order, nor greatness, nor littleness, nor equality, nor inequality, nor likeness, nor unlikeness. It neither remains stationary nor moves, that it is neither power nor light, that it neither lives nor is life, that it is neither essence nor perpetuity, nor time, that it cannot be grasped by the intellect, that it is neither science nor truth, nor sovereignty, nor wisdom, nor singularity, nor unity, nor divinity, nor goodness, neither spirit nor sonship, nor fatherhood in any sense that we can understand them, that it is not anything accessible to our knowledge or to the knowledge of any being, it has nothing to do with non-being, but no more has it anything to do with being. That no one knows its nature, essence, that it eludes all reasoning, all nomenclature, all knowing, that it is neither darkness nor light, neither error nor truth, that absolutely nothing can be asserted of it. That's a key phrase. Nothing can be asserted of it, and absolutely nothing can be denied that when we formulate affirmations or negations applying to the realities that are inferior to it, we are not affirming or denying anything about the cause itself, because all affirmation remains on this side of the transcendence of him who is divested of everything and stands beyond everything. Probably lost you somewhere in there. <laughs> but what is this saying? What would you, having read all that, what's your reaction? It's deep. Deep. <laughs> Just that it's incomprehensible. Incomprehensible, good word. It reminds me of a, a hymn or something I heard that says, he stands outside of time, okay. which, again, incomprehensible to understand. But, mm -hmm. So the essence of God is incomprehensible. And anyone else? 
makes the X little more sense because it's something from nothing that you're not anything that comes after the throne nothing. Like you can't just subscribe to what came before that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that last part is that anything inferior to it is trying to ascribe it to that isn't it really makes sense. Mm -hmm. So right, so yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Uh, sovereignty stuck out to me for some sovereignty. reason. Just mm -hmm. said more sovereignty and I guess I think anyone's sovereign God is sovereign. Right. It's very fascinating. Yeah. And, and why 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 this approach is because as soon as we say, well, God is this, then we are putting him in a box. And even if we say God is sovereign, which is obviously the case, but we we only say that as a way to point to him, um, but not as a way to define him. See the difference? Because again, if I define somebody, then I'm above him. I'm, I've encapsulated him in my mind. I can define him, right? Um, and this is where the approach has to be in this way where we say what he is not. Um, and really, it's a humbling approach, isn't it? And it, it allows us to, when it comes to, again to the essence of God, to put things in the proper perspective. Okay? So, um, so as Orthodox Christians, when we are talking about God, by his essence, his nature, we gladly say, we gladly say, I don't know. Because if I knew his essence, then he would no longer be God. Okay? So, um, not, what we're describing here, God's essence, is what we're describing um, God before all time. How he appears five minutes before the beginning of Genesis, right? Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So what we're describing when we're trying to describe his essence is this period of time. We can't really call it time because time did not exist. Again, our vocabulary is limited. Um, when we're talking about his essence, that's kind of what we're trying to express. But then God reveals himself. Again, here's that word, revelation. God reveals himself by creating. And we'll talk, the, the book talks about, you know, the six days of creation, uh, what God created, and then um, what happened to creation. So it gives us a little bit of detail there. The question that we want to go into a little bit is not how he created things, because again, it was a long time ago, and we can't try to um, get uh, very uh, technical about, well, when did he create this, and what does he mean by this, and you know, the, 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 the in the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, account of creation, obviously it's like a poem, it's very literary, in the 
It's very mysterious. What we want to look at more is why. Why did God create the world? Why did God create man? That's the what's more important for us as Orthodox Christians. So God, the unknowable God, reveals something of Himself to His creation as being the whole a, a holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But even what he reveals remains shrouded in mystery and incomprehensible, to use a word. And the revelation, this revelation of the Holy Trinity is recorded in the Holy Scriptures and experiences by holy people of God, the prophets, the saints, the martyrs, and the righteous. They all experience a revelation of the Holy Trinity. In the Bible, in the Scriptures, we have revelations of the Holy Trinity from as early as the book of Genesis, right in the very first uh, few verses, in fact. Um, we call these theophanies. Uh, theo, God, phani is like a revelation or an um, encounter or an uncovering. Uh, so theo, theophanies, where God sort of gives us a little peek, just a little bit, so we can know him a little bit more. Um, this icon that you're seeing is a very famous icon by a Russian iconographer named Andrei Rublev. He's now Saint Andrei Rublev. And he is depicting here, I also have it here, um, he's depicting a, a scene of the hospitality of Abraham, it was called. It is when uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah have, uh, welcomed three visitors. And if you read that account, um, it's a very fascinating and mysterious account because he addresses the three visitors in the singular. He says, Lord. And, and so in the Orthodox understanding, this account is an encounter, a kind of um, symbolic, prophetic encounter of the Holy Trinity in, uh, with Abraham. Um, and so Andrei Rublev conceived of this icon, which I think was a very spiritual vision that he was given, depicting the three angels and uh, as a depiction of the Holy Trinity. Not that the Holy Trinity are three angels, but that the, this image is a theophany, a revelation that this visitation of the three angels was a visitation of the Holy Trinity to Abraham in this form, okay? Because again, he there's three persons and he refers to them as one. And I'll talk more about this icon another time. I'm gonna move on and I'll pass the ground and take a look at it. Um, so what are some of those other scripture verses? As I said, right in the beginning of the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said. So right here in the beginning, we have three uh, mentions of the word God. And they all refer to, all three are referring to the Holy Trinity. How? 
In the beginning, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. Hovering over the surface of the water was the Spirit of God. And God said, his word, his logos, is the Son of God, the Word of God. And through him, as St. John says, all things were made. So right here, in the very first lines of Genesis, you see a revelation, a glimpse of the Holy Trinity. So there's other little glimpses of the Holy Trinity and especially the persons of the Holy Trinity existing before all time. And also that there was something between the holy uh, the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what was what was among them, what, what they shared with each other, is love. Again, and that, that's why I started the class with that, uh, pointing that out. In John 17, Christ says, "Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me." before the foundation of the world. Okay? Questions before I continue? Or comments? Okay? So, um, I have this, this diagram here, and uh, that I like to use when I talk about the Holy Trinity, because the Holy Trinity, again, we were talking about not being able to know God's essence, but God begins to reveal himself in the creative act. And as the book described, uh, he does so out of an abundance of his love. So this word love comes up, but love is just one of the ways that God expresses himself. He creates the world uh, out of an abundance of his love. The love that is between the Holy Trinity, the persons of the Holy Trinity. And from that, there is an overflowing of that love, which then manifests itself in the created world. So all of creation is an expression of God's love, of the love in the Holy Trinity, okay, that, that the Father and the Son have, and the Holy Spirit have within themselves. That gets... Uh, expressed and manifested, and we call that the creation. Now, we said we cannot know the essence of God, but according to the Orthodox teaching, we can know what we call his energies. Has anybody heard this before? We heard this? Here. So, um, what are those energies? We can experience God, we can know him and experience him through his energies. And these are uncreated energies. In other words, they are not an effect that God um, produces. No, what we're looking at here is an image of a sun, like a sun in the sky. And it's one sun, right? It's a single sun. And in, in it are uh, is the word God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one in essence. In other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit all share one essence fully. And 
it says that according uh, that the son is begotten of the father and the spirit is proceeding from the father so you can see immediately that the father has a special position in a sense that all things proceed from him and the son is eternally begotten there was never a time that the son of god did not exist he is eternally existing eternally begotten again this is a mystery okay so we can only go so far with our words and our understanding uh we just approach it with awe and we submit to it in, in faith and among the three persons of the holy trinity you see this word love there is love and just as a sun has rays that emanate out light and warmth and ultraviolet rays and everything in that same way god's energies emanate out from him and what are these energies they are love life wisdom grace truth beauty light goodness joy hope judgment and forgiveness and those are the ways by which all of creation can know god and experience him so just by virtue of being alive we are experiencing god's energy when we love one another we are experiencing god's love flowing through us it's not just my emotion or chemical reaction in my brain no there's something greater there that i'm participating in when i um, have joy when i have hope when i have uh, goodness in me when i forgive others uh, this is a participation in god's energies so he permeates infuses himself into all creation so you see already we are experiencing a kind of incarnation right an incarnation where god is in and enters through and into his creation so he's both in his creation through his energies and at the same time he is outside of his creation and unknowable that's the paradox that's the paradox of god he's both within us and he cannot be contained within us because he is unknowable and outside of us that's the mystery Questions on this so far? Comments? How does the love fit between the persons in the Trinity? How does it fit? Say more, what do you mean by fit? Um, if like they're united, so where does the love, is the love like something that they individually have in themselves, but it's not like like in the diagram, it's something that's between the two, but is it really like something in the person itself? So, um, it is something that is, as you can see in the diagram, something 
again, if this is the source of love, if God is the source of love, the fountain of love, as one of his energies, um, this love between the persons of the Trinity is a mystery we don't know, we cannot speak about. But Christ calls it love. When he says in that quote from John, the love you had for me before the foundation of the world. So that's where we're penetrating into that, if I could use the word private uh, experience of that love, which we cannot really venture to even understand. But Christ is mentioning that in his prayer. Uh, and, and that's where there's a real uh, mystery that we can't really understand. But clearly, love is referring to the kind of love we think of when we think of love. And not only that, but if the whole world and all of creation is a expression of God's abundant, overflowing love, it gives us a sense of what this love in the Holy Trinity must be like. It's a creative um, you know, incomprehensible, true love in its purest form, I suppose. But remember, the apophatic approach, we can't even say that, oh, I know what kind of love that is, right? Because now we're limited based on my experience of love, how I've been loved or how I love others, I, I might think that that's love. And, the, and the, the, uh, the extent of it, we can't do that here. So when we say love, we got to sort of just say love and kind of just take a step back. Makes, does that help? Yeah. yeah. It's a, um, also a different kind of love. Like, or, <laughs> would, it, would it be a thing? Yeah, it can, I suppose. It's hard to say, you know. It's hard to say. But it's just expressed and revealed as love. Any other? Uh, that's a good question. Anyone else? Okay. So, um, let me see what I have next here. I have this beautiful poem. I think I'm going to skip it. So, creation. So this caused God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit desired to, as we said, create. Now, the question is why? Uh, in the creed, the very first article of the creed, it says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. So, one God, the creator, Father, visible and invisible. That means the visible world that we see around us, the universe, and the invisible world, which is the angels. Okay? So, God creates first the angels. And then he creates the visible world, uh, the universe. And as we saw in Genesis, in the beginning, God created. With that creation, time and space begin. Okay, time and space. So we cannot, again, speak so much about how he created, but we want to speak about why he created. Um, and we said, again, focusing on love, God wanted other rational beings to share in his love, to share in his glory, to share in his joy, his blessedness. And for this reason, he created the universe, created space and time. And because of his great love and respect for his creation, he created us 
as rational beings with free will and freedom so that we could voluntarily choose the path to him. So God creates human beings. He does not uh, create them in a way so that they're like robots and will just be obedient and do whatever he says. He gives them what you know as uh, free will. And he gives them a choice to either reciprocate that love and experience that love that he's given them, as you read in the book, or to refuse it. And we know the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, they misused the freedom. And they misused the freedom because they were not yet perfect. If they were perfect, if God had created them perfect, they would not have sinned. They would not have disobeyed him. But they were not perfect. So they were still spiritually infants. Um, but again, why did he create them? We said how because out of his love, but why? This is now where we get into something that's a lot of people don't know and are kind of unfamiliar with. And it's kind of shocking when you think about it. God created human beings, his original desire, his original plan for creating human beings was so that they could become like him. Was that so that they would become deified. Grow in holiness in greater and greater levels of glory and holiness. That was their purpose. To fulfill their identity and become children of God. That was their plan of God, um, that they might become like God. That's why in Genesis it says, a man was created in the image and likeness of God. He's given this potentiality, but um, they had to want this. They had to want this and stay true to that path. And they would do that by loving God, by obeying him in perfect freedom, not out of coercion, not out of force, not out of fear, and not because they wanted a reward, but purely out of love. And again, if they had, were experiencing the love of God in his presence, in all of creation around them that he built for them, his beautiful world, you would think that they would be content, that they would say, this is paradise. Why, why should I desire anything else? But as you read in the book, they were deceived, as you know, and they willingly turned from God and broke communion with him, broke communion with him. And that is then what caused the fall and their separation from God. As we read in Genesis and as the book describes in the pages you read. So this is when, uh, if God, as we said, is existence, is and his energies are, are life, and only by being in his presence can one truly exist. 
when a person, when Adam and Eve were separated from God, they died. Illness and death and sin came to a both because of that separation. Okay, Because they broke communion with him, death came into the world. Now, isn't that interesting? Because it was their falling away from God that brought death into the world. That tells you that by being with God, they were to give life to the world. They were to, what we say, be stewards of the creation and lift it up to God. And they failed. Adam failed at this task that he'd been given to be a kind of hybrid, a, a bridge between the created world and God. That was his, his mission, his duty. Okay, And as you know from the story, they turned away from God. They listened to the lies of the devil who told them, you can be like God. And they turned away from him. They broke communion with him. And now they had to suffer death. So why? Does anybody know why? They had to die. Couldn't they have just, you know, left paradise and just lived forever, in, you know, on the earth and just kind of made their way? Why Why did they have to die? Anybody have a thought on that? Well, I, I found it very interesting in the book. I think it said, like, as a protection against sin or protection against evil mm. flourishing. I yes. That quote, exactly. Yeah. So, to, so that their disobedience their sin of turning away from God would not be something eternal. Because remember, they're immortal at this point. So that it would not last forever and ever and ever, and they would sort of remain in that state of disobedience. He permits them to die. He removes them from his presence so that knowing they will die. Um, and of course, death is non-being. It is uh, it is non-existence. Yet Adam and Eve still had a soul. And now, if they had, didn't have a soul, then everything would have ended then. Right? Their bodies would have just died and that's it. But see, God creates man, and when he creates man, he creates him not out of nothing, but out of existing matter. So that means man has an integral relationship with the created world. He almost is made up of it, right? He takes it into himself. He's made up of it. Uh, but he also, when God creates Adam, he doesn't create him dead. When, when God creates Adam, Adam is a living being already. And as the book describes, when God creates, everything's instantaneous. He speaks it into existence. The birds, the plants, the, you know, the sun, the sky, the universe, everything. He speaks into its instantaneous existence. But with man, he takes earth and he forms him from the dust of the earth. And now man is a living, is is alive, but he's missing something. He has a soul, he has a body, but then God breathes into his nostrils, and that breath of God was the Holy Spirit. And now man is distinguished from other creation, from the other creation, because he has the Holy Spirit within him. 
And it is that which makes him a living being. Okay, so by living being, we mean the Holy Spirit. So now, since man has the Holy Spirit within him, since he has a soul, when the body dies, you know, something has to happen to the soul. It has to be recovered. It has to be restored. And the only way would be uh, is for that original plan of God, the plan to make human beings like him, to deify them. That original plan had to continue. It was disrupted by the fall of Adam and Eve. It was disrupted. But God is desired to still complete that plan. Anybody want to guess on how he does that? Christ. Exactly. Through the incarnation. And that's where the, the chapter ends. So you mentioned the, the old Adam and the new Adam, right? And um, let me see if I have another slide here. God became man so that man might become God. Divine. St. Athanasius the Great. That's from the third century. Um, what Adam, this purpose, this goal that God had set for humanity, for it to become deified and share in his glory, share in his life, that was disrupted, okay? And now it was no longer possible for human beings to attain that by themselves. What Adam had failed to accomplish, a new Adam came to complete. And this new Adam was and is Jesus Christ. Okay? So God's plan for the redemption of human beings and the fulfillment of their purpose of deification commenced with the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now think about that for a second. We just said that God is unknowable. He's incomprehensible. It's a good word. He's incomprehensible. He's unknowable. And now, for the sake of his creation, he does something which is also completely incomprehensible. And that just further reflects his incomprehensibility, if I could use that word. You know what I'm trying to say? God is incomprehensible, and he does something incomprehensible. Really meditate on that. Really got to think about that. And what is that incomprehensible, even shocking thing he does? Is he becomes a baby. He becomes a human baby. And even just saying these words is, is like a shocking, incomprehensible thing to even say. And that's why faith is something, again, that develops. Because you could say that to anybody on the street and they'll look at you like, what? <laughs> right? But how is it that now the entire world has been changed by this very event in human history? How is it that there are millions of people who believe this, who died for this, uh, and who are still living this truth and, and this faith. So, the second person of the Holy Trinity 
we say clothes himself with human nature. The one who is outside of time enters into our space and our time. The one who is divine in nature joins himself to human nature and thereby deifying it, sanctifying it, making it holy, making our fallen human nature restored to its original purpose. He becomes what Adam was meant to be because he is both fully God and fully human. In himself, he fulfills in himself the original plan for the deification of man. Okay? He completes his own plan that he had for human beings, that he desired to do even before the creation of the world. This is what he desired, that human beings would be like him. And he, knowing that Adam fails this, he willingly comes and does it himself. Now, the possibility of human beings once again living with God becomes a reality. Our return, our restoration to where we were meant to be, who we were meant to be, is once again a possibility. No, now human beings can do the same thing as Adam and Eve did, right? We can either choose him and believe in him and follow him, and love him, or we can reject him. It's the same proposition, the same offering that God gives human beings now. And again, because he wants so much for us to respond to him, to love him, uh, to accept him, he comes in this humble, oh, there's nothing humbler than a baby, right? There's nothing more innocent, more simple, more vulnerable than a baby. It comes like this to us. Let me share a poem that I very much like. A couple other quotes. The Son of God was made man so that man might become the Son of God. St. Irenaeus. This is a very beautiful poem that I, that I uh, really captures what I was just saying about God's great desire to bring us to himself. Look how what he does it. This poem is from the second century, uh, in originally in Syriac Aramaic. It's from a collection of poems called the Odes of Solomon. He says, his love for me brought low his greatness. He made himself like me so that I might receive him. <laughs> He made himself like me so that I might be clothed in him. I had no fear when I saw him, for he is mercy for me. He took my nature so that I might understand him, my face, so that I should not turn away from him. Isn't that powerful? He took my face so that I could look at him. Talk to him and not because of right, right because he has to come that way to us we cannot see his essence we will drop dead no man shall see my face and live said God to Abraham you see so God comes in this way it takes on a human face so that I can now approach it 
I can feel comfortable and I can have the relationship. So, for God so loved the world, as you know, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, that's the key word, through him might be saved. And in the Orthodox understanding, when we say saved, when we say salvation, we mean not you gotta get you got a ticket out of hell card. No. When we speak of salvation, we mean deification. Becoming holy, which is the whole purpose of our human life, as made possible for us by Christ Himself. So, questions, comments? I know it's hot and it's a little late, but there's a couple things I'm going to share with you um, to wrap it up today. Any questions or comments? Father. Yes. Oh, yeah. Can, Father, it's, it's Marie. Can Marie. I just ask a couple of maybe, I don't know, questions real quick? Absolutely. One is when, when, when Adam and Eve were created, were they created with the thought that they would be having children? And starting a world, or was it just going to be Adam and Eve? Do you no, know? Yeah, that's a good question. They were given um, this potential to multiply. Uh, okay. We don't know exactly how that would have happened. Um, but after the fall, it says that God gave them garments of skin. And some people interpret that as, you know, he took like... Um, like bears and took their fur and wrapped them in fur. No, the theological meaning behind that is that somehow Adam and, Adam and Eve's original nature, their body was composed of something that, that we've lost. When, when oh, Christ okay. is resurrected and he appears to his disciples, he has a transfigured resurrected body, right? He's eating mm -hmm. with these disciples so they, can, so they can prove that he's not dead or not a ghost. Uh, and that he's truly alive. But he's also kind of going through walls and he's appearing and disappearing. Clearly, uh, there is a new human nature, a new, a, a restored human glory that now Christ is embodying, okay? And so that is more like what that original state of, of Adam and Eve was. And as part of that, any kind of procreation, any producing of new children, in that primordial, in that state of paradise, when Adam and Eve, before they fell, uh, would not have uh, happened through sexual union the way we understand it and experience it now, but some other way that God must have devised. And what we experience now in, in our in procreation, you know, is is such a um, is is something that has its its own understanding and experience and, and people, you know, experience it in different ways, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. for the fall, there was another purpose for human beings. He wanted more than just Adam and Eve to share his life. So they were to multiply, yes. Oh, okay. 
I always wondered about that. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone? Uh, sorry, I didn't stop to ask if anyone from home had questions. Okay. I want to share with you now at the end of the uh, book, we just got finished talking about the incarnation. And in the book, there are a couple of nice hymns. Uh, I thought I had my book. And one of them is the hymn of the uh, Annunciation. Right? God uh, decides to proceed with this plan of, of salvation, and the angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary. Next time, we're going to talk a lot about this moment and about the nativity. But I want to share with you some of the hymns that are chanted about for this event, this, this monumental event in all of human history, when God begins to fulfill his own plan. So this hymn is, um, hopefully you guys will hear it. Let me see here. I'll do a couple of versions. This one, um, is it this one? No, I didn't bring it. Shoot. Okay, so here's like a, this is a Byzantine style of the hymn, and you see the words there. classical in Greek Byzantine chant to give you a sense of what that sounds like. And the words of the hymn are, Today marks the crowning of our salvation. And the revelation, there's that word again, the revealing of the mystery before all ages. That's what we were saying right now. Is this is God's original plan for human beings before all ages. The Son of God becomes the Son of the Virgin, and Gabriel proclaims the grace. Wherefore, we also cry out with him, Hail, or rejoice, or full of grace, the Lord is with you. So you see how the hymns of the church really reflect the theology. But that's a key phrase right there. The mystery before all ages is revealed. What God had always intended. Um, let's see what I got here. Oh, so this is another version.
notice, you notice the difference in the style there a little bit, right? One was a more the Byzantine style chanting. This one is more uh, what's called the Znameni style, which is uh, what you hear more in the Russian Orthodox churches, the Slavic churches. Both are very beautiful um, and really, I think, capture the truth here. Um, if you would like, I have a nice little video, about six minutes long, that's all about the icon of the um, of the Annunciation. And uh, should we take a little break and have some refreshments, and then uh, we can watch it. Any questions? One thing maybe it's more current, yeah, perhaps yeah. just in the book you mentioned um, how that Adam and Eve they don't say with certainty is like are the first people necessarily mm -hmm. the common ancestors. I found that kind of interesting. Yes, isn't that? Yeah. And I think it's because uh, he's approaching it from that um, looking at the text from Genesis not in a historical way, the way we mean history. Yeah. Because God, in, in the book of Genesis, God didn't set out, or Moses didn't set out, to kind of write a anthropological treatise. It's clearly a very mysterious book with very mysterious things being said. And so the church looks at some things uh, allegorically and some things um, in a more, let's say, direct and way. So... Right, six days of creation, five, six days of creation. Is that literally 24 hours a day? Or is that, as St. Paul says, or Peter, you know, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years? Um, and there are many other books that we can look at in one day that, that really get into this whole understanding of time, um, of time uh, as God understands it, or as we understand it. Because remember, God's outside of time. Now, we are experiencing linear time, but he's not. He's above it, beyond it, before it, after it. Uh, it's difficult to wrap your mind around. But you're right. Adam and Eve stand for humanity. Were there, can we say, quote, unquote, historically, there were an individual named Adam and Eve? Yes, we can. As the first human beings created. Um, but from a theological standpoint, the church focuses that Adam and Eve, first and foremost, represent humanity. But Christ didn't just come for Adam and Eve, he came for humanity. So all of human nature has to be restored and, and resurrected to its proper, to its original place. How do you like the father? My wife did that. It's the father's room. Yeah. I have a question I was thinking of mm -hmm. listening to this. I see maybe monophysistic, but uh, Christ is true God and true man. True God and true man, yes. Was he always true man? Like before the incarnation, was he true man then before he was born as Jesus Christ the baby? Is that a, um, it's a good question. Was was this before he became um, Jesus Christ, the historical person of Jesus Christ? 
uh, the Son of God existed with the Father. In outside of time, outside of creation. And at that time, he was not a human being, but he was not man. What we say, he when he be, when he's born into the world, when he becomes a baby, we say he's fully human, meaning that he takes on our human nature completely. And this is why he takes flesh from the Holy Virgin Mary. So he's a, he's an actual human being with a soul, a body, who experienced hunger, who experienced suffering who lived in our circumstances. So he's fully human in terms of his human nature, his essence, and we can say he's fully human in his experience of life because he desired to experience everything we experience, right? Suffering, sadness, hunger, thirst, pain, and death. So this, in this sense, he's fully human. And then he's fully God because he is one of the Holy Trinity. And what an essence of a whole train. It's a good question. Anything else? Uh, I got one more question. Yeah. Can we get the recipe for this? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very good, huh? Yeah. Uh, you got to find a Middle Eastern store and get fava beans. <laughs> and uh, I'll, get, I'll see if I can get you the recipe. Yeah. It's a yeah. good, it's a good uh, fasting Lenten meal. Yeah. That's why you got it. Think about how like God would have known that the plant or man from the deified would have been disrupted. Mm -hmm. But then what's also kind of fascinating is that all the events that laid out in the scriptures ended up setting the stage for Christ, and without making it so much people didn't have free will up until that point. Which, that's something I always thought was kind of fascinating, is that how there are plans of things, but then people have these choices mm -hmm. that they make. Like, they're making a choice, but they're not really in control mm -hmm. at the same time. And like, which seems to be even more... Well, wait a minute, when you say they're not in control... Can you explain that? that God is totally in control and has the plan set there. Right, but, it, what, but we don't um, say that God sort of preordains or right, right, predetermines. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah, yeah. Because like, what's interesting is that it does sort of sound more awe-inspiring that there is a free path down this plan, you know? Rather than just saying, um, God has turned the wheel and everything's finished, it's more of like, you still have a choice of things. Yeah. And yet, there's still also, these things are going to happen. You know, there's still these prophecies. And there's still, mm -hmm. uh, right. Yeah. And so you, your choice is, do I align myself with God's will for his plan to be fulfilled, or do I fight against it and, uh, you know, move, move away from it? That's why we say God's will. Um, God's will is for humanity to know Him. God's will is for God's will is to love us. God's will is to save us. And everything He does, 
everything that he has done has been for that end, for that purpose, right? But he can't force us to want to be saved. Because then that wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be love. Yeah. Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. Right? He knocks, and the person has to open the door. Be willing to open the door and let him in. Uh, but he will only knock. Because he respects our freedom, our autonomy. And I wish the government would too. <laughs> That's another point. So um, we have to respect our own, individually, our own freedoms. And that's why freedom and love are two of the highest virtues in uh, the Orthodox understanding. Right? Can't force anybody to do anything. Can't force you to be catechumen. Can't force you to be baptized. Um, can't force you to sit in this class. <laughs> um, but I'll, you know, give you a good incentive and bring good food. <laughs> I'll come back every week. I'll come back every week. Thank you for that. So uh, let's watch this uh, nice little film, very short, about the, um, the Annunciation. Having talked all about God and, and his plan for humanity, how now this commences in this moment uh, where Gabriel visits the Holy Virgin. And it says my internet connection is unstable, so let's see how it goes. One of the most striking features of a Byzantine-style church is the extensive use of iconography with images often covering most if not all of the walls inside the sanctuary. Upon entering this sacred space we see the scriptures come to life through the imagery, colors and events that are depicted and convey deep meaning about spiritual realities that are often beyond our comprehension. And while the cumulative effect of so many images is quite powerful each individual icon offers us the same experience. A good example can be seen in the icon of the Annunciation. Imagine being one of the earliest iconographers. With scripture as a guide and inspired by the Holy Spirit, they had to figure out how to portray such a great mystery in a manner that would render the meaning accessible to all. As we read in the Gospel of Luke, it's the moment when the Archangel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary to announce that, with her consent, she would conceive a child and bear a son. This will not be just any child, but the son of the uncreated and eternal God. The event occurs indoors, as indicated by the red fabric swag draped across the structures in the background. In the foreground, the Archangel Gabriel appears before Mary. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. The Archangel is depicted with one wing upraised, 
and his feet apart, as if he were running. The posture of his body gives a sense of motion and captures the urgency and great joy of his message. With his right arm he imparts a blessing, while with his left he holds a staff that is the symbol of his authority as a messenger of God. The Virgin Mary sits on a high seat to symbolize her lofty status as the Mother of God, and yet her posture and words exemplify grace and humility. How can this be since I do not know a man? To this Gabriel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Mary's posture with her head bowed towards the angel is also one of great obedience, as her words attest. Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. We see three stars on Mary's clothing which symbolize that she was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. She holds in her hand a spindle of yarn, which depicts the task assigned to her for making the veil of the temple. The colors of her garment are also symbolic, with the blue underneath symbolizing her humanity and the red symbolizing the divinity she receives. Through bright colors we see the joyful message of the angel delivered to the Virgin. We also learn of this great event through the hymns that are chanted throughout the year. In them Mary is known as the living ark, the burning bush who is not consumed, the golden jar of manna who held in her womb the pre-eternal God who by a word created the entire universe. She is proclaimed to be the one who contained him that was uncontainable, thus proving that she was more spacious than the heavens. During the Orthros service on the Feast of the Annunciation, we hear chanted that which is depicted through the icon. The age-old mystery is revealed today, and the Son of God becomes the Son of Man so that by partaking of what is lower, he may impart to me what is superior. Of old, Adam was deceived, and he did not become God, though this was his desire. But now God becomes man, to make Adam God. Let creation sing for joy, and let nature be exultant. For the archangel is standing with awe before the Virgin, and is delivering the salutation, Rejoice, the reverse of the pain and sorrow. O our God, who in your tender mercy became man, glory to you. Reactions to that, uh, what you I, saw, or I kind of broke down the symbolism, the symbolism uh -huh. of the icon. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's amazing how much those. It's like no, no, like no part of the image is wasted. Right. You know, everything means something. Everything means something. Right. Right. Um, that's a great point. And uh, 
Let me see here. If I can pull that up. Yeah, everything means something in the in the icon, as you said. And did you hear how he described what was actually happening, you know, in this event? And he mentioned right that self plan of salvation that Adam had disrupted is now commencing and being fulfilled. A key point there. And, and the hymns of the church are expressing the theology. Before there was the theology books like the one you're reading, you know, before even even the Bible was printed, people were singing these hymns that contained the hymns that contained the theology of the faith of the church. And this is how the faith was taught. It was through singing of uh, of the hymns. Uh, and the people who composed the hymns knew the faith and knew the theology and and, and this very divinely inspired way to compose and add words to the music so that people could sing it and and you know learn that way. That's a very amazing technique really to pass on knowledge in this way. And if Adam if Christ is the new Adam, who is the new Eve? Right. So the, the Theotokos is the new Eve. Because notice when, and we'll talk about this more next time, but she has the consent. She has to agree to this. Otherwise, again, she would be like, there would be no free will. There, she'd be just sort of a robot that's just God's going to use and then thank you. No. Her will has to be included in her, in her assent to it. Um, that she's first of all, she it requires her faith and belief, right? An angel has just appeared to her, and he's telling her, "This is what God desires," and she says, "Let it be. Let it be done unto me." Which is what? What? So much humility there, so much faith to be able to say that when you know. And that's why, and we'll talk more about the Theotokos next week, why she is so revered in the church and our love is so great for her. I would strongly encourage you next Wednesday, if you're able to, come to the Paraklesis. I've been saying that because the, 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 the words of the Paraklesis are going to show you and teach you exactly what we've been talking about. And I want you to experience it at least once. And all this will sort of resonate when you'll see these themes and these truths and teachings pop up as we're singing the hymns. And you'll go, oh, I remember that. That's what we talked about this and this and that. It's just a really wonderful way to worship uh, God and praise him with the truth of his revelation actually being chanted and sung. So I encourage you to try to make it at least one paraphrasis. Uh, we have them every Wednesday night. Any comments or questions uh, before we conclude? Anyone from home want to ask anything? Yeah, Father, I had a question. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Karen. Hi. Um, so th this question popped up for me a little while back, and uh, you were talking about uh, the Orthodox perspective on salvation. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think about the saints a lot during um, – because they seem to deify themselves. Um, 
within the span of their life, even after they die. But the idea, um, the idea that they're, I wrote my question down in the comments and I just okay. lost it. So about salvation. Oh, it again. Yeah, about salvation. So is the idea that we'll know about our deification or our salvation when judgment comes for mm -hmm. us, but uh, and is is the idea that the saints for the saints that decision has been built to them ahead of time? Um, the decision has been say that again ahead of time what? For the saints? Still there, Karen? Hi, Father. I don't know if it's my internet. It might be my connection. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think okay. it might be my connection. You know, maybe I'll eat. Okay. Um, I wrote it in the comments. Okay. And I can also just email and bring it up next time if you want. Yeah. Um, let me just respond a little bit from what I think I heard you say. So the deification, this... Uh, fulfilling of our purpose as human beings to knowing God and growing in holiness, sanctification is something that happens uh, when we, or we, we commence on that path. The potentiality of that begins when we're baptized, we receive the Holy Spirit, and now we are given uh, everything we need to fulfill this purpose on our own. God provides everything through the church and it's our duty and our privilege and our blessing to respond to that and live out our baptism. And the saints are people who lived out their baptism uh, in a way that was not easy. Um, and the, the element that is involved is what Christ describes when he tells you know, his followers things like, he who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He talks about fasting and prayer being the only way to overcome the devil. He talks about um, forgiveness. He talks about you know, love for God as being the greatest thing we should focus on and not love for the world or love for money. Out of this teachings, we have what we call the ascetical life, which the Orthodox Church gives us through our schedules of feasting and fasting, through our you know, uh, uh, practices of prayer, through the liturgy, through the Eucharist. So God is providing all that through the church, and every person who considers themselves a, themselves a serious Orthodox Christian is going to uh, participate in that the best they can. And to the extent that they participate in it, that is how much they will attract God's grace and sanctification so that they become deified. Does that, so, so you see, it's, a, it's what we call a synergy. God provides the means by which this can happen. We have to 
do it and show up uh, and, and actually apply ourselves and put in the effort. And when we do that, then God gives his grace. Now this sanctification, this deification of the human person becomes possible. But let me, let me just clarify something. The deification, the sanctification cannot happen unless we are also, or I should say, um, that's not like our, uh, the prize we're after, right? Like, oh, I got to get holy. I got to become holy as though it's something that God's just going to sprinkle on me. No. Uh, first, what needs to happen is as part of that sanctification, what is happening is the healing of my soul. The healing of my spiritual, my soul's wounds and, and the brokenness of the human nature, that has to also be healed. And the sanctification is healing, right? Salvation is healing. Uh, healing the human person from the consequences of sin. And this is what Christ desires to do for us. And this is what happens in the church. See, so so it's a process, it's a journey, and God promises that those who commit themselves to this and desire this, desire to be healed, right? Like Christ says to the to the man who was paralyzed, he says, Do you want to be healed? And he asks the same thing to us. Do we want to be healed? Do we want to become close to him? And the saints are the ones who did. Uh, any other questions from anyone at home or anyone here? Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, today was very heavy, I think, with the theology and the terminology. Uh, but we had to establish that to give you all a sense of this awe-inspiring moment in history where the unknowable one becomes knowable. And... The next uh, few chapters that you're going to read is going to continue now with the nativity and what what that means for human history and how we understand it in our faith. So we'll talk more about that next time. So please continue reading, um, and we'll meet again next week, Wednesday at 6.30.